0: this podcast is part of the democracy group and when it comes to conflict you can have very loud voices that drive a perception that this is what all or most people think and so people become sort of afraid to say otherwise um, even if it might be the case that others hold their view because those voices are so loud. And I think that part of what happens in that silencing and disengaging, and part of that targeting of upstanders, is it targets norm setters, It means that the people that could set a different norm or show people that you can still have belonging, you can still be part of a group in a community and stand up against violence, et cetera, are, those are the voices are said. So part of the reason that it matters for everyday people to engage is that each of us in our actions, whether it's inaction or doing something are shaping the perception of norms, are shaping, do people perceive, hey, people in my community are civically engaged.
1: The Village Square,
2: a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country and a good time. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen,
1: at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Hey folks, welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Corey Nathan, and I am so glad to be with you. Thank you for joining us for The Roots of Belonging and the Risks of Othering. With Rachel Brown of Over Zero. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Check out Florida Humanities online at floridahumanities.org. This episode very much picks up on what we discussed with guests such as Todd Rose just recently, who talked about his book. Collective Illusions, and Bonnie Guzman, one of my favorites, with Braver Angels and her book, I Never Thought of It That Way. So many of us continue to be alarmed by our country's civic life, where if we're being candid, we have this collective proclivity to view other citizens as direct threats to us, where we watch our institutional guardrails bend but not break, but they're bending, and where political violence is a real possibility. So, in this conversation, we're joined by Rachel Brown, the founder of Over Zero, a reference to the concept of zero sum, like zero sum game or zero sum politics, which <laughs> I gotta say, I love. It's like, I'm over zero already. Or if it was my dad, he'd say, uh, enough with the zero already. <laughs> anyway, I digress. Over Zero is an organization that was founded to prevent, resist, and rise above identity based violence and other forms of group targeted harm. So now you'll hear our very own Liz Joyner, who shares an in-depth intro of our facilitator, Ted Johnson, who then gives us a great profile of our special guest, Rachel Brown. It's a wonderful conversation that's also very timely. Liz, take it away.
3: Good evening, I'm Liz Joyner, founder and president of the Village Square. On behalf of the Village Square and Florida Humanities, we're delighted you've joined us tonight for the Roots of Belonging and the Risks of Othering, with special guest Rachel Brown of Over Zero. This program is made possible by funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the United We Stand Connecting Through Culture initiative. It's part of a multi-year series of digital programs, unum Democracy Reignited, presented in partnership with Florida Humanities, exploring the past, present and future of the American idea as it exists on paper, in the hearts of our people and as it manifests in our lives. Any views, findings, conclusions and recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of Florida Humanities or the National Endowment for the Humanities. We are delighted to welcome streaming partners USC Center for the Political Future, National Institute of Civil Discourse, Listen First Project, Common Ground Committee, Bridge USA, Braver Angels, Civic Health Project, McCourtney Institute for Democracy, Unify, Center for the Humanities at the University of Miami, Network for Responsible Public Policy, and our wonderful long-term partners, the Tallahassee Democrat and WFSU Public Media. Now it is my distinct pleasure to introduce tonight's facilitator, Dr. Theodore R. Johnson. Ted is a senior advisor at New America leading its flagship US at 250 initiative marking the nation's semi-quincentennial and a contributing columnist at the Washington Post. Prior to joining New America, he was a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice at the NYU School of Law. He is a retired commander in the United States Navy, go Navy, serving as a White House fellow in the first Obama administration as a speechwriter to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. His work on race relations has appeared in prominent national publications across the political spectrum, including the New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, and National Review, among others. And important to Ted's bio, Ted is a former special guest of this very Unum series, where he joined us to discuss his extraordinary book, Truly. When the stars begin to fall, overcoming racism and renewing the promise of America. Ted, welcome.
2: Uh, thanks so much. I appreciate that kind introduction. It's always good to be back with uh, with you guys, and and especially to, to to continue the conversation that we had before around my book, but to do it. Um, and extended into the world that's happening around us now. Some of these really pressing issues and questions. And so um, we're super lucky to have Rachel Brown with us tonight to walk us through some of her work um, around the world that that is uh, will shed some insights on what's happening again, both in the country and in places beyond. Um, So Rachel Brown is the founder of OverZero with the mission to prevent identity-based violence and other forms of group targeted harm around the world and here at home. OverZero works in the United States, Central Europe and East Asia, providing assistance to a diverse set of partners, including civil society leaders and organizations. For the past decade, Rachel's work has focused on using communication to prevent conflict. She's the author of Diffusing Hate, a strategic communications guide to counteract dangerous speech, and was a fellow at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. She formerly founded and was CEO of CC Ni Amani, Kenya, where she worked for four years at the intersection of communication and election violence prevention. And another note here is Rachel is a friend. I got to know Rachel, I guess, just before COVID. Uh, broke out and we've uh, stayed connected through various pro-democracy efforts and it's a real pleasure that, to be with you tonight Rachel and to talk about some of your work so welcome thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks so much and I'm really glad and excited to be in conversation with you Ted.
2: Yes absolutely. I'm
0: grateful to, to everyone who pulled this all together.
2: For sure, for sure. And thank you all for for joining us. Um, And so, you know, it's it's really tempting to just dive into the good stuff. Um, And by the good stuff, I mean the very sticky, wicked problems that plague the world around us. Um, But we should probably do some level setting first. And so um, as Rachel and I were talking beforehand, we'll sort of talk about some of her work, do some some uh, level setting, and then we'll go from there and talk about the concepts of of belonging and othering, and then come to present day after a few minutes of doing this preliminary conversation so that we have are operating on the sort of the same baseline of knowledge, you know, same point of departure, and then we can dive into the, the harder uh, contemporary issues. Um, okay, so... Can you tell us just a little bit about Over Zero and the the role of identities in the work that you've done both overseas and here?
0: Absolutely. Um- So over zero, as you said in the introduction, works to prevent, um, address and reduce identity-based violence and other forms of political violence and group targeted harm, which is a mouthful. So I think it's helpful to define what that means. Um, Identity-based violence is violence that targets groups of people based on some part of their identity. So it targets people as part of a group and based on, on on any element of their identity. Um, We also work on political violence more broadly, which is violence that gets used to shape who gets to participate in, who gets to fully benefit from all aspects of a society, the social, cultural, economic, um, uh, civic life of a society. And so, A lot of the work that we do is, um, if you think about interpersonal conflict, that might be conflict that happens between you and me. We look at conflict that happens on the level of a group, um, what you might think of as as us versus them or an in-group versus an out-group. And so we look a lot at the dynamics of groups and how groups or societies get mobilized um, towards violence and come to um, accept violence against an entire group of people based on um, their identity or perception. of their identity. And so my own background actually is in election violence prevention in Kenya and then in genocide and atrocity prevention international which is sort of the most extreme version of identity-based violence that actually targets an entire group of people for extermination. Mm
2: -hmm. And and so these social identities, this is um, different from, or does it overlap with things like partisan identities or things like racial and ethnic identities Um, I I, want to help our audience understand the difference between sort of group v. group and party v. party or state versus public. Um, So uh, social identities, how how do those sort of relate to the other identities we hear lots about?
0: Yeah, so social identities are something that we see really important in our work, and they can be the types of identities that people get get targeted for, um, but it's also just important for us to understand how conflict arises in a society. And so um, our social identities, our identities is related to groups that we're part of. Um, and we all have a lot of them, right? right? So we might have our partisan political identity. We might have our religious identity. I'm from Baltimore, so I'm a Baltimorean. I'm also an Orioles fan. So I'm often brokenhearted and sometimes really excited about
4: <laughs> football, right.
0: but I really love the Orioles. And so if I meet another Orioles fan, and we can bond, um, and, and that's that's part of my social identity. I went to Tufts, so I'm a jumbo, um, I'm a peace builder. I've worked in that field for a long time. I'm a creative writer. I have all these different parts of myself. And I like to think about it that in a healthy society, we all get to be all those different parts of who we are. We get to access all those parts of our identity, and it lets us relate to people. It lets us find community and belonging with different groups of people. Um, on the areas where we might connect with them and we can also be forming new new identities um, um, all all the time. It's pretty malleable. Um, When we see conflict arise part of what happens is that we get pushed into a pretty singular and rigid version of our identities that might be one identity or it might be sort of a bundling together of identities so things like that can be our partisan political identity that could be our religious identity ethnic identity the language that we speak it, you I, the list goes on if you want to look at conflict throughout mm-hmm. history um so that, what happens um, when we see this sort of identity based or intergroup conflict um, is that that part of our identity sort of subsumes the rest. And so Mm -hmm. let's say that, uh, Ted, you're an Orioles fan, but now suddenly we have different religious backgrounds. Um, And if the conflict is happening based on religion or if uh, religion and ethnicity or religion and partisan affiliation are getting bundled together, I might suddenly not want to be near you in the sports, uh, in, in, in like when we go to see um, to see baseball together, right? I'm right, Not right. want to be near you and um, at Camden Yard. It's because you're you're like like so so this this um, very rigid singular part of our very diverse set of social identities becomes so all-consuming and overwhelming, um, and and. Um, and groups that are that are on the outside of that are seen as as potentially threatening. Um, that it prevents us from finding those different lines of connection.
2: Right, right. Okay, so we've got these multiple identities all um, living together, usually in harmony. And they get primed based on what we're doing. And so if we're at, you know, a homecoming weekend at college, the alumni identity gets primed, But if we're watching baseball, sports fan identity gets primed. And then when one of those identities, or some bundle of them gets um, activated to um, maybe in response to a threat that's perceived to be existential or or, or the threat of violence, that identity or bundle of identities becomes the most salient one, not only to define ourselves, but also to define who we're working against, like the bad guys or, or the, the opponents. Um, and, and so if okay, so that's sort of the baseline of how group v group conflict sort of comes to be out arising out of identity. Um, so then w- one of the things that y'all do at over over zero is look at the world through the eyes of the people and the groups you're trying to reach. Um, and then, uh, sort of watching the the anger and polarization form um, can be kind of frustrating. Like when you're kind of watching yourself being, you know, barreling down to this uh, this crossroads of conflict with someone with with another group, um, and not seeing a way out of it, it can be really frustrating. So, what what does like what have the lessons been for folks on the road to conflict when when in these identity based conflicts? Um, are there things that uh those like best practices for groups to know more about the folks that they're sort of on the road to conflict with or, or things that can be done to derail things before they get uh sort of get out of hand?
0: That's a really good uh question, Ted. And I almost think about it, um Sometimes in my mind, uh, if you think about media literacy as it's been is is like this Mm. idea that we have to be aware of the media and how it influences us. I recently have just been thinking about what it would be like if we were all sort of intergroup dynamic literate Um, Mm. which is a mouthful, but it's that sort of, um, self-awareness. And we see that in sort of the, the self-awareness of, um, how our own individual brains work and how we maybe respond to things like trauma or anxiety and how like a self-awareness can really help. And one of the things is that when conflict starts to escalate, a lot of dynamics come into play and they're sort of self-perpetuating or can create these, um, these self-driving cycles or or conflict can sort of spiral. Um, In an extreme case, once you have violence, once one group commits violence against another group, then their uh, violence sort of begets more violence because the Mm -hmm. narrative on the group that's been targeted with violence is they've been violent to us. Um, Now we need to take revenge or we need to defend ourselves and that can really cycle. And actually you really said it well when you talked about um, what happened take up a particular identity salient. there's a lot of things that can make one identity more salient more relevant to us in a moment but coming under threat is one of them so if we perceive that we're mm. under threat as part of a group that we're part of especially if it's a sticky identity one that we can't change the color of my skin the religion that i was born with um you know uh, uh, things like that um when those identities come under threat um uh we we can sort of buckle down. They they become more important to us. We become more desirous of protecting the group that we're part of, um, and and so one of the things that we really see in the road towards conflict is the use. And, and my background is also in the communication piece, right? So we see the construction of threat, the idea that mm-hmm. that the other is a threat. And I think that um, it can be easy to intellectually understand when we're outside of it, but um. But but all of these narratives, all the things that, that I study and work with are really human. So we can also map it all onto ourselves. Like how do we react if we actually feel like we are under threat, right? And we think that then we're doing something to protect ourselves. Um, but um, if everybody in a situation feels like that, that sort of self-defense narrative or protection narrative um, can make each other feel less safe and again become this self-perpetuating cycle. So I think um, what what I'm trying to or wanting to say here, is that I think one of the ways that we can walk back these dynamics is through actually getting educated on what they are. So for example, the construction of another group as a threat and the belief Mm -hmm. that that group poses a threat. One of the ways that happens is through narratives that say they hate us, they see us as less than human. These are our perception, how do I think they see my, they quote unquote, that group my group. when we think that another group dehumanize, dehumanizes a group that we feel part of or hates us, that's really threatening and scary. And studies show that that the response is to dehumanize in turn, right? right. That one of the best ways to walk that back is to humanize, but it becomes a standoff. Who will humanize who first? But if one group shows humanization of the other, it takes away that sense of threat. And so people are willing mm. to recognize it. Um, to recognize each other's humanity, so there are these sort of feedback cycles like 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 that. Um, even things like there's something called motive attribution asymmetry, where we tend to think my group is acting out of love, we're trying to protect ourselves, but that group is acting out of hate. Um, and when we think that, it becomes impossible to think that we can find a way forward. But We're generally, each of us, no matter what group in a conflict that we're part of, operating from those um, same narratives. So part of what we try to do is understand what are those narratives, what are the emotions that are being activated, how does that create different feedback cycles, and where can we where can we interrupt and and a really big thing that we see matters is how leaders act how they engage how they use mm-hmm. their voices how they um how they work together to do that and I, I don't mean official just elected leaders i mean all different types of formal and informal leaders um, in a society um and, and, and i guess I'm giving a really long answer to your question but but one thing I'll throw in into the mix as we're getting started here is that one of the things that I see as one of the the, the really concerning indicators on a pathway towards different types of of uh, of violence that, that I work on is that um, one of the really powerful narratives is that because there is, some other group that's such a threat and there's this narrative mobilizing people to violence through a narrative that we have to protect ourselves we have to protect the vulnerable Um, violence is absolutely necessary to do that even violence that targets groups of people based on their identity they've already done these horrible things that deserve revenge they're somehow less than human we see we see this cycling of narratives about the other and mobilizing people to violence through this protection. And if you're a real member of our group, especially if you're a real man, especially if you um, um, care about our group, our community, then you're gonna be willing to use violence even if it doesn't feel great because it's necessary. Um, And so you start valorizing of violence. And one of the things that happens in there is that people who are speaking out, especially people that are speaking out with the identity that could be a political identity, a religious identity, ethnic identity, and national identity, but with an identity of a group that that is being mobilized with those narratives and that are saying, "Hey, wait, we don't believe in these narratives. We don't want to move towards violence." Um, these could be called um, I, th- these are moderating voices against violence, mm-hmm. sort of within group um, upstanders, if you will. Right. Um, they get targeted. They get targeted. Uh, early on, these are some of the earliest targets of narratives that drive towards violence. They are called naive, uh, weak, traitorous, not really a real member of our group. Mm. And so those voices that could mitigate against violence and serve as a source of resilience, can fall silent. And when those voices right. fall silent and disengage, we're left far more vulnerable. So one of the biggest things is for people to connect with each other and be able right. to find their voices um, within their communities and, and really use them together because it can be scary to do it alone. Um, right. So there's, there's a lot of different things we can yeah. do. But that's <laughs> just to get us started.
2: No, all good. So, so okay, this is good. Um, all right, so we've got these groups, sometimes the identities that are in conflict are manufactured and sometimes they're real sort of identities that you're born with. And um, and then uh, I love the word that you use, the sort of, um, I think you, you said like these constructed threats. And so it isn't always that us versus them is because there's been an actual threat or an actual act of violence and we're just now defending ourselves sometimes the construction of a threat is the point to create an us versus them, and then people leverage that tension for economic gain, for political power, uh, to sort of shove their policy agenda down the throats of others. Um, And then the moderating voices that could get us off the path to violence are targeted, because if there's no conflict, then those that would seek to benefit from the conflict have now lost their ammunition. Um, And so sort of baked in your answer there are the concepts of othering and belonging. Um, and as I understand it, and, and tell me if how close I am or, or how far off I am, we want the people on the us side of things to feel like they belong to us. And we want the people not on the us side of things, on the them side of things to be othered from the us. And they are operating with the same philosophy, except they're they're doing the belonging with them themselves and they're doing the othering against us so what what do these words mean and then how do they they contribute to the spiraling of conflict
0: this is um a really great question and i want to make sure not to forget to come back to what you said about construction of threat because it's a reason mm. business- of this. Um, But one of the things, so I just described a little bit of narratives, and I should say that there's really amazing work by um, the Dangerous, a group called Dangerous Speech Project, also by an academic, Jonathan Leader Maynard, who's looked at what he calls justificatory mechanisms, ideological Mm -hmm. justifications for violence, and really looks at those sort of ideologies and ideas that we see in societies Specifically towards before mass violence, genocide and mass atrocities. And I think it's really informative to look at those extremes so we can identify where we see seeds that are problematic and Mm -hmm. inherent in those narratives. I think when we think about violence, we often just think about the narratives that other Right? The narratives that take a group of people and say they're outside of our circle of concern and fundamentally different in some way from us, right? That draw a boundary um, and say there are some people that are outside of that boundary. And those narratives of othering that we see in this extreme cases of violence are some of what I was just describing. It is that threat mm. construction, which we, we should come back to because it's really important to understand. So it's, it's the creation of the idea that, that, that an entire group of people poses some sort of an existential threat to our existence, right. to our way of life, um, quote unquote, um, to our jobs, our values, our quote unquote purity. Often there's ideas of even mm. just the purity of a group. Um, And so there is that construction of a threat that's used to other groups. And and that often goes along with the idea that members of a group have already committed really egregious, horrifying sort of crimes or violations of values. And, and, And it comes with this idea, all of this comes with this idea that an entire group somehow shares an essence, right? So that even if a couple of people did something, somehow the whole entire group of people shares blame and responsibility and somehow in their essence is guilty for this wrong um, rather Mm -hmm. than individuals. And that goes along with dehumanization or uh, de-identifying. So that group is somehow fundamentally different from us in their values and the way that they operate and um, is what these narratives say. And then in more extreme cases, it sort of says that another group is less human than we are or actually not human. And so that can include from sort of famous examples comparing people to animals, um, vermin, pests, mm-hmm. um, rabid animals, rabid dogs, um, uh savages or barbarians, less sort of quote unquote, like 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 earlier evolution um sort of terms for people um, it can also include more innocuous things like language so you hear this a lot in immigration narratives like there are they'll use language like there are swarms of people crossing the border and mm. crossing the so so there is this othering there's this idea of some group of people as being fundamentally different and some essential level in their core in their essence but but that comes hand in hand with narratives about an in-group about who are we? What is the circle of concern? And it makes a really rigid boundary over who belongs and who gets to be part of this quote unquote us. And we talk about belonging and it's this really fundamental human need that we have to feel like we fit somewhere. And we're actually wired for it. We are hardwired to want to be part of groups, to want to form groups, right? This is, as a species, how we survive. If you drop me in the woods by myself. Um, I'm not gonna survive for very long. We survive by collaborating with each other. We survive mm-hmm. by creating groups and community. And so our wiring for belonging is a beautiful thing. It's, it's why all those different parts of my social identity let me access different spaces of belonging and connections um, and exclusion is perceived as a threat. We register exclusion in the same part of our brain that registers physical pain because it's actually threatening to be oh. outside of a group. Um, and, and so we have this wiring really like in terms of, 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 of how our brains even operate that drives towards belonging. And the narratives that lead us towards violence don't only other, they create that sense of belonging and that that boundary around who is in us, who 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 do I belong with, that are very again like I said singular and rigid based on a part of our identity, but taps into that hardwiring in really unhealthy ways by creating that boundary between an us and a them, and then um, and then the narratives that. that that mobilize actually a lot of what they do in saying we're protecting ourselves, we have no choice except for violence. If you're a real member of our group, you'll come along with us. Um, They activate a lot of social pressure, right? Like that silencing of upstanders for people to go along if they want to belong. So I think what we see with all of this is that there's a lot of the ways just that we function as people, our desire for belonging, our sensitivity to threat, all these things can get sort of weaponized and manipulated um, to drive us towards conflict.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting um, the, the power of words to to signal who's on your team and then who the bad guy is, um, as well as what you stand for. I, I, I use this example in some of my classes that on on questions like abortion, there's the pro-choice side and the pro-life side, but there's no one that's anti, right? Mm-hmm. We, the the only time there's the an anti is when it, one of the pro sides are describing the other side as anti-abortion or anti-life or something like that. But when they describe themselves, it's always pro. And so it's 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 you know not only uh, defines themselves by what they believe in, but also suggests sort of in the communication that um, they they are standing for something and not against someone. And and I've, I've always found it really interesting how how those things kind of come to be and then the last thing I'll say that'll kind of roll into this this next question um, is there's I saw a paper from a um a political scientist named Julie ronsky and I think she's got a a, a book or a book chapter or something coming out but what she found was that when folks use the word un-American to describe their political opponent opponents here in the states that they are more likely to support or violence or sort of authoritarian tactics because those people as you've just described they're not us there's something fundamentally different about them and therefore whatever we need to do to suppress the threat or to remove these other folks um, is acceptable including violence because they're not us they are fundamentally they are at odds with, with who we are and, and what we stand for okay so so with all of this then how does this create problems for democracy? Because you know, high school civics says, well, ambition checks ambition and government is slow to move and that you can throw all the factions you want to this large Republic, but the process and the structures of democracy are geared to prevent this kind of stuff from taking over. And yet we're watching the, the fraying of democracies here and abroad based on a lot of this us versus them sort of group on group conflict. So what what's the connection between identities uh, othering, belonging, and then like the strength or the state of a nation's democracy?
0: Yeah, Ted, it's a really, really great question. And I'll say, I mean, I did, I have come to work in the United States after um, working internationally um, for many, many years and have been working here since 2016 because I saw a lot of things that I'd seen play out elsewhere. Mm. And I think that what we have to understand is well, in some of these dynamics come online in really powerful ways. Um, we've seen here, and I've talked a little bit about how um, if you just ask someone, do you think um, killing people based on their identity is okay, people are going to say no, right? Right.
4: right.
0: Um, I look at these patterns of narrative and communication that help drive and serve as really, really serve as early warning indicators that we should be concerned because what I'm what, what I'm interested in preventing and, and therefore first interesting interested in understanding is how do people who are otherwise just people living in a society and entire societies um, come to accept, to justify and even accept as sort of necessary um, this type of violence that we would otherwise see as completely unacceptable, right? And it is through that process believing uh, in this, I I mean, there are conflict entrepreneurs, there are people taking advantage, but in general, we see a mobilization of these really powerful human emotions like fear, anger, disgust, the wiring and the need to belong, the social pressure, right? Like these are some of the the things under the surface that are happening that these narratives are helping mobilize and we want to survive, we want to protect ourselves. So if we believe in this construction of, of a group of people as a threat all of these things cause us to justify and accept things that would otherwise be completely out of bounds. And I go back to this point because it's the same reason why when I start to see these types of narratives in a society that, that is a democracy, that's been, that has its flaws and all of that, but is generally has institutions that are functioning, that are on the whole moving um, um, towards progress and greater, Inclusion and enfranchisement and all of those things, um, these narratives that sh- that that can lead groups of people to accept things as necessary that were otherwise completely unacceptable, and that can um, push others to go silent or disengage because the price to their belonging, the price to to even sometimes their safety or security is too high to speak out mm-hmm. against it. Um, those mechanisms that can be used to justify violence can also be used to say we're willing to go outside of our institutions right we're willing to accept anti democratic processes sort of by any means necessary to protect us um, at this very existential quote unquote us at this very existential level, and where that gets to me where that gets really dangerous is where whole groups of people are portrayed as a threat because you start to justify really harmful behavior but when this narrative comes into a democracy you get into much more of a zero-sum winner-takes-all sort of team-based competition than Mm. the ability to debate and fight and um and be polarized in healthy ways to to debate different topics and figure out what's going to work um, and and drive things forward. Instead, you get a willingness to say we need to go outside of our institutions if they aren't delivering the things that we want because it's winner takes all um, and 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 very high threat and very high stakes. And I should say like these these dynamics can play out in different ways. Conflict can be symmetric with that you have two sides relatively equal power ratcheting up it can be asymmetric where a group that's been historically marginalized or has less power is being targeted. It can it can be very complex, but um, I think we need to be looking out and aware when we see these types of, of patterns. So I guess I see it as pretty, um, I, one way to think about a democracy or any system of government is that it's a conflict um, management mechanism right it's how Mm. we get to deeply disagree and hold really different opinions and values and um and without using violent conflict right debate and argue and come up with how we're going to live together and and so it's a little bit of a feedback loop like one of the early one of the risk indicators for violence is that you have um, something, you have an unstable system, right? So so democratic backsliding or deconsolidation a um, reduction in democracy would be seen as increasing risk of violence and conflict. But these same zero-sum competition um, dynamics also can serve to provide the justification um, to chip away at democracy.
2: Right. Wow, so, I mean, so it almost sounds like, you know, the work you were describing overseas and and even here when it's when it's group versus group, the moderators are targeted to sort of get them out of the way and allow the thing to sort of spiral. And the same can be said of democracy for conflict entrepreneurs the goal is to remove the moderating effect of democracy remove the deliberation that democracy would otherwise bring about in order to feed the conflict that then turns and can be harnessed for economic and political power even if it is very destructive in the process and perhaps maybe the, the violence of the destruction is part of the point so um so we've talked uh, you know about sort of these words these concepts these these ideas and now can let's bring it forward and sort of like see it in, opera, in operation. Um, th- there's almost too many examples to, to begin um, to, to play on or to, to sort of uh, investigate, analyze just in the last few years. I mean, we could talk about COVID and anti-Asian um, violence. Um, we could talk about January 6th. We could talk about uh, the current war in Israel. Um, and uh, and you know I'm following a terrorist attack by Hamas, um, and so I, I wonder if if one of these, I mean, maybe the Israel one is is one that we get to next. And I wonder if there's like a if we could look at January sixth and say, okay, what was the us versus them? Where was the othering the belonging? Where was the the point of like eroding democracy to see how these conceptual ideas and frameworks we've talked about this is how they played out on the national stage?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think I'm trying to think where to begin and which examples, and I might even think to go through a couple of them, Ted, because mm. I think, um, context matters, right? And so we can talk about different events that have caused different um, othering different in-groups, different out-groups, but if they're all happening in the context of this country, these examples that we're talking, I mean, that you gave an overseas example, but a lot of the examples we're talking about, we're asking how are they playing out here, how are they playing out right. in this country? Um, and, and this country has a con, so, so if uh, in sort of conflict prevention work, Um, we would always analyze the context and the history and look at the history of what group identities have been activated, which groups um, has there been violence against in the past? Where have there been lines of division that turn into violence? What are the different power dynamics? All of those things to understand what's the strength of the institution? There's so much that we would analyze in that. When I'm describing some of these sort of psychosocial dynamics and how they play out, there's an example that we often use that's a little bit more recent when we're trying to help people understand social identities usually start with something simple like I'll ask people to raise their hand if they're uh if they love cats and I'll raise my hands and I'll ask them to raise their hands if they love dogs and I'll raise my hand and usually a lot more people will be raising their hand with me and then raise your hand if you love both and these are all sort of silly social identities but the truth is you can love cats you can love dogs this is very benign right of us that we're creating and of in groups you can love both you can relate to people and as you start to introduce threat like if you go to a sports team right it gets a little bit more us versus them but the stakes aren't generally that high that you can see violence at a sports game and then when it comes Mm -hmm. to these stickier identities um it becomes a lot higher um and and it is that introduction of threat and so i give an example i remember that um a really long time ago i was at a meeting, and nothing to do with with this type of uh, concepts at all. But the facilitator as an icebreaker asked everyone to talk about the last time that they felt like they were really part of something bigger than themselves. And one mm. of the people in that room um, said that they were a New Yorker and that it was in the days after 9-11 riding the subway, they felt this solidarity and they felt like they looked around and they, they felt like everyone around them sort of felt like part of, like they were in it together and they were part of something and they understood each other. And I've thought about that a lot since because I know a lot of people um, who felt that way after 9-11 and I know a lot of people who really didn't feel that way after
4: 9-11,
0: quite the opposite. And so so this is an example where where there was an attack and for a lot of people all of a sudden um, this American identity became really important and really salient. But that didn't happen without othering, right? A lot of Muslim Mm -hmm. communities and anyone that was perceived to be Muslim, Arabs, Sikhs, South Asian, et cetera, were targeted, stores vandalized, hate violence against individuals. And so you had people um, that maybe did feel the American identity, right, prior to 9-11, suddenly being sent these really violent signals that says, you're other. Right. And so you had this activation of one identity and it's been really interesting because I think some people are very aware of that. We've worked with a lot of groups where I never thought that there was actually that that feeling of of togetherness actually came with the price of other people. And 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 that lasted for a really long time. Right. We live in a um, in a country now that really normalized um, uh, a lot of anti Muslim, anti Arab, et cetera stereotypes and um and, and acted on it in a lot of ways and i think you you brought up covid right when covid happened we similarly had um, and it's not that there's not a history of um, we have a history of internment of Americans of Japanese ancestry we have a lot of history right. um, in this country of identity-based violence and group targeted violence um, but the narratives that were activated so so to so back to 911 the narrative that that was created was a narrative of threat was that people that are part of this group pose mm-hmm. a threat they're violent in this way like all of these narratives um, like what we just talked about were used um, to other And then in COVID, you have a very real threat, a disease. And then you have this narrative that holds a group of people responsible and portrays them um, as guilty. And, and when that is allowed to be normalized, be accepted, um, and and when we talk about these patterns of speech and rhetoric, I should say we take them in the context of a communication ecosystem. It's not just what's being said. It's is it being said mm-hmm. by people in positions of influence and authority? Is it being saturated across the different types of media that people are consuming, et cetera? And so you had in certain um spaces a real saturation um, um, from people in positions of of influence and and, and power um, and credibility for different audiences and saturating across different mediums, whether that was mainstream television or the internet, these these narratives that constructed um, threat, right? I should say this threat construction is always a lie to say an entire group of people poses some sort of a threat. So it always involves a degree of storytelling. It often involves giving one example of one person and saying that they're symbolic of an entire group, um, whether that story is made up or true, right? Um, it, it, and we call we talk a lot about mis and disinformation these days. We can get into that if you want, but, but it, it's not really new. Um, the social media is new, but anywhere with conflict, you have propaganda lies, manipulation of truth, and, and that is how you create a construction of threat. And, and so you had this um, justification of violence. You had othering of a lot of, um, a lot of different communities during the COVID pandemic. Um, and to show that it's a complicated tapestry it's not like the post 9-11 narratives went away in that time period right it's not like the narratives and tropes around um around race went away during that time period you also in that time period had something really um happen that um that you had the sort of pro and anti-mask pro and Mm -hmm. anti-vax
4: um
0: and I think what happens there that's that's another thing that we can think about is, is when an identity that's not really visible, right? Do I, in my mind, believe that that you should have a mask or not is made visible because am I wearing a mask right. or not, right? So there's a period of time where you could walk around and you knew if somebody was wearing a mask or not, you could kind of guess their political affiliation. And you had people even sparring over that somewhat around the sort of public health consequences, but sometimes around like all the assumptions that you made um, about someone, right? So that people wouldn't feel safe wearing a mask in a certain place or not wearing a mask, right so so you have um you had there another line of division that was created. Um, you had a lot of rhetoric in our public um uh, political setting during that time mm. period that was othering various right. groups of people. Um, and then when it got to January 6th, you saw we saw the mobilization of a group of people that had been organizing and active under these various forms of othering so you saw on January 6th people come together at the capitol in violence who were mobilized by a variety of narratives it wasn't just one um, homogenous group it might have been under the banner of stop the seal but if you think about how we got to that point there are mm. people that were mobilized by some of the public rhetoric coming out of out of our highest office holder at the time. You have people that were mobilized in different spaces through different conspiracy, like um, anti-COVID, anti-vax conspiracy theories that then were tied into broader conspiracy theories about different groups, um, uh, targeting different groups of people based on their identity. You have people that came to that through um, various organized misogynist groups that sort of um peddling misogyny and in um anti-immigrant anti-muslim anti anti, um lgbtq plus etc and you've seen a lot of that movement continue to morph right now there is a lot of targeting of lgbtq plus communities and so so i think it's really important what happens often when we see that type of targeting and othering it might start with targeting one group of people um but it's um it often moves to target to to different targets. And part of what it does is it can, the constant is creating that rigid boundary of the circle of concern and an us that needs to be protected from all of these various um, um, threats. So on January 6th, we really saw this mobilization of this group that had sort of been radicalized in that way um, and and bought into these narratives um, uh, of threat, et cetera, um, and mobilized to violence, Um, but but where it gets murkier is when you look at all the people outside of those people that were mobilized, right? And you see the different roles that people play um, in enabling and speaking out and becoming silent, et cetera. It's it's a complex patchwork there.
2: Yeah. Wow, okay, so um, there's a a few questions have come up and I'm trying to figure out how to sort of roll it into a, a single question, just like a single idea. And the general sense of it is um, if the way to counteract dehumanization is to humanize your opponents and not sort of play into the game that they're playing. um, And um, also mediators are good for sort of walking conflict back or preventing things from from getting out of hand. And education is also good and sort of knowing who the other folks are sort of getting rid of the perceptions about who you think they are, what you think they might believe and learning what they actually believe and who they actually are. Um, But even there with like book bans and the DEI sort of conversations in different states, um, it seems like at every turn, the thing that could stop the conflict from getting worse or prevent violence from escalating or even beginning those are the now the, those are the things that are being targeted again di in K-12 or CRT in colleges or, or these other things so um is the is the the thing that everyday people can do sort of just stay the course to find ways to get educated and share that to find ways to to humanize um the, the you know the folks that are against you to sort of find ways to stay engaged or does it get to a point where now systems have to, step in and deescalate and the sort of the, the actions that everyday people can undertake, it, its we've sort of gone too far.
0: Hmm. It's a really good and complicated question, Ted. And yeah. I, my answer would be a bit of a both and. Um, it gets more complicated if you're in a full-on active conflict or, or a war zone where people are really struggling to survive. And even then, um, I will say you see people, individual people, doing really extraordinary things even in the midst of the absolute worst types of violence. You see people during any genocide. um, You have examples of people who heroically at risk to themselves save their birth or or do things to try to stop it. So I I don't think that there's ever a point at which it doesn't matter what everyday people do, but I think that there are does come. I don't think we're there yet, but there does come a point where, where the costs are, are really incredibly high. Um, mm-hmm. and uh and it the the sort of barriers to individuals acting um um increase. But I think Ted, for the most part, it is it is really a both and to your question. Mm-hmm. We are certainly not at that point yet. Um and I think that the way that we don't get there is by a combination. Of, uh, of everyday people, as you say, um, who are engaged in their communities um, and the types of actions that they take. And I can talk a little bit more about what that can look like. And also, mm-hmm. we need both. But we also have to remember that our systems and our institutions are people. Right, like we think about this, right. with this with this work around election administration. Right, any of us can volunteer. Right, and be an and and help in the administration um, of elections, be an election worker on election day, help get people the information that they need. The institutions that function to keep our our democracy running are made up of people, and some of those are positions that we can all engage with, and and some of those are are positions, but we have to understand that it's still people um, acting with a variety of incentive structures. And so those, we, we do need those institutions to take action. And we can also think about what we can do to, um, to support them, to do so, and to ask that they do so, and to make clear that there's a demand to move forward in a different way. The reason that I think it's so essential that everyday people do stay engaged and do stay active, um, is that, um, Um, becoming silent or disengaging really seeds the space so that the people that stay engaged um, Mm -hmm. are the ones that are that are leading towards violence so so and that's part of what happens I always say when we look at the worst case scenarios and like I said I studied and look at the worst case scenarios so that we can take lessons of how we don't get near there right Mm -hmm. but but um they don't just happen because people mobilize and and Uh, mobilize people to do really problematic harmful things they happen because the people that could otherwise prevent it disengage or fall silent Mm. right and Mm. and we have to look at that disengagement as a risk as well and we also have to be compassionate for people that it can it can be really hard to engage on a lot of levels on an emotional level and otherwise and so i think that um And one of the things that happens, one of the ways we didn't talk a lot about social norms, but I want to for a second, because I think that's really important to understand and important for understanding why um, everyday people can engage and why it can matter. Um, Social norms are what you might call unwritten rules for belonging to a group, they are the things that that are sort of um, my colleague uses this example that if you get in an elevator. You you get in and Ted, I'm imagining when you walk into an elevator, you turn around, press the button, and stay facing the door. Is that right?
2: That's and right. If, yeah, and I usually move to the back corner, so yeah, I'm out of the way. yeah, oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, it would be pretty weird if you walked into the elevator, pressed the button, and then stood and faced everybody else in there, and
2: just <laughs> like,
4: <laughs>
0: and like, it's not because there's a law or a rule that says you can. It's because it's socially weird, right? It's and so these <laughs> social norms are these things that sort of govern our our behavior, and they're they're the, these sort of unwritten rules, but um. But uh, what it turns out, one of the biggest findings from social psychology in a long, um, over the last many years is that when you want to predict or understand how people behave, the the best predictor, even sometimes beyond their privately held beliefs, values, et cetera, is what they perceive the social norms to be. What do they think all or most of their peers are? Or are doing or will do so a Um. great example here is college binge drinking so um, they did studies of college binge drinking and found out that students were overestimating how many of their peers were binge drinking wow and they tried all these interventions to drive down binge drinking and the one that worked the best was to correct those misperceptions
2: just tell the right. truth, right? <laughs> the truth. And then
0: people realize, oh, less people are binge drinking than I think, and they did so less. So it means right. that all those um, anti-drug commercials from the 90s that were kind of like, everyone's doing it, don't do it, were actually doing the opposite. They were making right. all of your peers. are doing. And this has borne out in everything from um, people paying their taxes on time, electricity companies will use this to tell people you're using, um, on average, more electricity or, or more re- um, fuel than your neighbors, and that will cause people... To engage in more environmentally healthy behavior and use like right so so these norm perceptions are really powerful but we tend to overestimate negative behaviors just like with that binge mm-hmm. we see them more and notice them more and when it comes to conflict you can have very loud voices that drive a perception that this is what all or most people think and so people become sort of afraid to say otherwise um, even if it might be the case that others hold their view because those voices. Are so loud, and I think that part of what happens in that silencing and disengaging, and part of that targeting of upstanders, is it targets norm setters. Right? It means that the people that could set a different norm or show people that you can still have belonging, you can still be part of a group in a community, and stand up against violence, etc., um, are the, the, those are the voices that are said So part of the reason that it matters for everyday people to engage is that each of us in our actions, whether it's inaction or doing something are shaping the perception of norms are shaping do people perceive hey people in my community are civically engaged people in my community actively reject this sort of violent rhetoric and as and the majority of us actually say we want to live uh, peacefully together. We want to respect each other's dignity, right? And and creating those, this gets back to what you were saying, what are we for, not just what we're against. Setting those positive norms is a role mm. that we can all play in our communities. And we don't have to do it alone. We can find ways to connect with different people and think about how we can set those sort of norms and values and expectations of in our neighborhood, this is who we are. This is how we treat each other. Um, it, on our sports team, in our local town or city and setting really positive norms um, around how and activating all on all those different diverse identities, not just along conflict lines, but ones that come across them, um, and really powerfully setting norms that ask us to engage each other, to treat each other with dignity, to participate civically in our democracy in peaceful and healthy ways. Um, that's sort of something that that's one example of something that we can all play a role in, and where actually, yeah. even by doing nothing, we are inadvertently playing a role.
2: Right. Right, which sort of rolls into um, you know the thing that's been dominating the news for the last several weeks—the uh, uh, conflict, um, the Israel-Hamas war, essentially—and um, you know, it's it sort of at, at least my read of it, and I'd love your reaction to it. Is that it's it's breaking the way we typically think of the us versus them, because the lines aren't as clear uh, in this conflict when we think about how folks are are approaching it here in the States. We we see folks on the left, um, some that are on Israel's side and some that are supporting Palestinians. Um, We see on the right, some that don't want to support Israel and want to focus here at home um, or want to institute another Muslim ban. I mean, there's usually the bundled identities that we've now sort of labeled one side to be Republican, conservative, the other side to be liberal and democracy. Israel-Hamas war comes along and starts to break some of who the uses, you know, who we thought us are and who we thought they were. Uh, and so in this kind of situation, how, how does what we've been talking about uh, play out or unravel or evolve when the uses versus them are now turning friend against friend on issues of everything else, perhaps except this?
0: It is really complicated. I wish I had one easy answer, but I think there's a lot of different things going on. And I think one of the things to hold is that there's so much grief and pain that people mm. are experiencing. Um, and there's this sort of framework um, that operates that. Um, I think one thing I was, I was talking with a friend who's done a lot of research around this, that, that when we feel in a state of conflict, it becomes really hard to recognize someone else's pain or grief, unless ours is realized first, it becomes threatening to mm-hmm. realize pain and grief that's seen as being the other side. Um, unless our pain and grief is first recognized. Um, And he's studied that in different conflict contexts, starting in um, Guatemala, looking at the Civil War there, and and then looked at in a lot of other conflict contexts. And and really this is a dynamic that we see and it's it's really sad because um, you can think of it as a standoff of our willingness to sort of recognize each other's grief and humanity. And it's a really dangerous dynamic um, to get into. I'll say, I'll, I'll say that um, where I sit and with my background, the thing that unites my views is that um, uh, there is nothing that justifies mass killing of civilians, that's my background, that's my work. And to me, right. that applies no matter who those civilians are that's being killed and, and no matter who the perpetrator is, but uh, a lot of the frameworks and narratives that are being set up ask us to choose, right? right. Um, and, and I think it's really hard, and I think part of what's happening is that sense people feel afraid, people feel threatened, um, and people feel a lot of pain and grief, and um, and and we're seeing some of that really play out. It's really interesting what you point out that there's sort of a, a mussying of of these different. Um, right groupings and groupings of identity. And I think it just goes to show that, that some of what we talked about before, where we feel a sense of threat to an identity that we hold where, where we, um, where we see that. Um, I also think something that's getting that that a lot of these narratives are very zero sum and not all, Mm -hmm. Again, let me say like, this is not across the board. I see, um, people that are really specifically speaking out that, that land on quote-unquote one side or the other and are saying we need to find a peaceful solution together. Um, mm. Some of the most compelling narrative that I've seen there, but that is rare, I would say in, this, in sort of what, what is getting the most coverage is a narrative that says, this is not zero-sum. It's not either we are secure or you're secure. And this is, is Jewish and Palestinian Israelis um, and, um, Christian and Muslim coming together. Um, And their message uh, is is this sort of anti zero sum narrative. Their, Their narrative is one that says, we need to recognize the full scope and spectrum of guilt and pain. We need to say that mass killing of civilians is not okay. And therefore we condemn mass killings of civilians period, be they in Israel or in Gaza. Um, but they're what they're also saying is, we need to stop buying into this narrative that violence is the only thing that's gonna get us out of this. Um, what mm-hmm. they're saying is that this zero-sum narrative that says we get our safety and security at the cost of yours,
4: right.
0: or you're gonna get yours at the cost of us, is actually a very oh. false narrative. And what they're saying is it, is, it is this narrative that's gotten us into this place right now. And instead, it's it's either we both win or we both lose either we both get dignity rights security and an agreement on a peaceful way forward or we are going to live with without safety and security and with um and with violence and and so i think that we are seeing a whole landscape of narratives i will say i am uh I am concerned about the narratives that that I look at as early warning indicators, and and my I've, I've written a little bit about this just on a personal level. And my ask to people would be to self reflect, right? And to ask the one I see the most is this destruction of alternatives—the idea that there's no choice other than violence, um, and and therefore um, targeting civilians, uh, targeting. Um, at a pretty mass scale it has to be justified because it's the only way to safety and security and i just think we should always um reflect and i've seen that used to justify um october 7th and i see it used to justify the ongoing violence that we're seeing right now in in gaza and so i i do feel concerned at at the way i see these narratives and i i I do feel concerned the way that i see it playing out um in the in the united states as well
2: yeah yeah, one of the questions asked, and this um, feels like a good time to ask it, uh, because it's it's looking for, for like rays of hope or little grooms shoots of optimism that you've seen. And so the question is, if there are inspiring examples of people uh, using facilitated dialogue at some scale to lessen othering and expand circles of concern, or two institutions disseminating the skills. To a population so that they can do some of the anti-othering work uh in, in their everyday interactions. So like good news stories of of, of like places where the, the interventions from the public and uh have sort of worked and and uh lessened the violence that that could have happened or or was underway.
0: Yeah. Um I'll talk a little bit about some of the hope that I see here in the United States, but maybe Ted, I could start by sharing a couple of the stories that we sometimes use when we do trainings and workshops Mm -hmm. um, that come. So, so one of the, like I, like I've said a few times, um, one of the things that I've done in my work and that we've done in our work at OverZero is to look at the extremes, to look at where, um, there is, um, there is some of the largest scale, most, uh, um, harmful forms of, of violence and ask what precipitates it and ask about some of those narratives and things like that. We also look in cases where there is actually active violent conflict. what are um, the qualities of, of communities that are able to resist? I mentioned before there are always people who, by virtue of their their values and and by acting as upstanders will do things like in the midst of a genocide, rescue their neighbors or or take courageous action but it's more rare that whole entire communities are able to resist participation in violence and a couple of the case studies that we look look at internationally um, one is the a city the city of Tusla um, in Bosnia and during the war there during the war that wars that broke out all over the former Yugoslavia. Um, In Bosnia, this city of Tusla was home to all three of the major um, groups that were part of the conflict. Um, But throughout the entire war, it did not turn violent. And actually, quite the contrary, members of all of those groups lived and worked peacefully side by side throughout the conflict. And it was not by accident. Um, a few different things happened. Um, the local mayor, so a person in a position of, and it's not that that um, a lot of this conflict happened on nationalist lines, right? So it's not that the nationalists weren't trying to, to um, plant seeds and um, make headway in this city with the newspaper, with, with, with various um, actions. It's that uh, a coalition of different citizens groups and the mayor actively stood up and made sure that that didn't happen. And so the mayor actually, we talked about these different identities. So identities that were being activated were Serb, Croat, Bosniak. The mayor said, we're Tuslan. We live in Tusla. This is our city right, mm, and mm-hmm. really activated this Tuslan identity and attached it to a set of values. To be Tuslin and to live in Tusla meant that you adhere to a set of values um, that that was about living and working peacefully together. And instead of the threat being the other, so in the construction of narratives, it was the threat would be um, somebody from a different group, Croat, Serb, Bodniak, et cetera, the threat was division itself. So we are Tuslin. Mm, mm-hmm. we live and work together in this city and that's our strength. And the threat is the division itself and the presence of conflict. Um, and we're gonna work together to mitigate that threat. Right. And so they said he set really clear expectations and did like went on public speaking tours around the city with like a megaphone made a whole song about being Tusland, but simultaneously citizens were organizing, right? Everything mm. from a religious leader to a local minors union to a local radio station, women's groups, and they formed this sort of coalition and coordinated with the mayor. And what they did is they looked for early signs of conflict and tension, and they were able to engage in mediation when it was needed. They were able to say tension is rising here. They were able to intervene in different ways when the city came under siege, the residents worked together to survive the siege rather Mm -hmm. than falling into further division. Um, When a shelling came from outside the city and killed young people who were playing in a peace soccer game, they mourned together rather than saying it was your group that that um, did the shelling, right, because of course the violence was being done by people under the banners of those different identities. So they really activated a unifying social identity that could compete with, they made it more salient, right, than the lines that they were being divided on. They attached it to a really clear set of values and social norms and expectations, and then they managed it day day in and day out, conflict that arose. There was one religious leader from one community was kidnapped and another community wanted to retaliate. And because there was these relationships in place, the religious leaders were able to tell the mayor and he was able to mediate and intervene, right? They held public forums, really engaged people um, and, and made people feel that their safety, their, all of this was wrapped up in each other. Rather than just, rather than threatened by each other, and there's a lot. This, this, this is one story, one example, but it shows a lot of the things that matter, which are things like. Um, like people working within their own groups, right, people in the miners union were helping work to calm tensions that came up there. Um, people in a particular religious community were coming and saying, hey, I hear talk of retaliation, can we mediate and prevent this from happening. But it was also people coming together around a unifying social identity that mattered to them with a really clear set of values and social norms and pressure. So, um, I think it it teaches us a lot about the power of leaders and the importance of of finding and activating identities that can compete with the conflict identities that are being Mm -hmm. activated, Um, of building those types of skills and finding how do we appropriately use things like mediation and dialogue to help ratchet down tensions and deal with events as they arise? How do we set those really positive social norms that can be more pro-social of how we can work together? How do we tie those unifying identities to values that let us see each other's humanity and so um, things that I see that are that are promising here is 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 like you mentioned there's a lot of initiatives to do local dialogue to help people come together with people that they might see as other um, and to get those skills for people to be able to engage in an environment that's really tense and when we just engage with sort of our slogans and our 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 sense of threat ratcheted up. It's really hard to have really human conversations where we understand where is this coming from for you? What are the emotions that you're feeling? Is it coming from pain or anger or fear or um, a life experience that you had and and lets us see each other. But um, I also think that it's important. I don't think it's just one thing, one type of of, of program or work or action. Um, we also need to keep strengthening our institutions and there's so many efforts out there um, to strengthen the institutions that function, um, that, that help our democracy function, to make sure that there's poll workers working and that people that are doing those jobs have the support that they need. And the, the thing that really gives me hope, we work with so many different leaders. We work with leaders from all different faith backgrounds, all different political backgrounds. We work with, um, Different types of organizations we work with, um, we work with business. We, we work with so many different types right. of leaders who are who really disagree with each other in a lot of really fundamental ways, but are all interested in working to prevent the type of division and escalation that we have in this country from, um, from turning into further violence, um, and are committed to trying to set norms and. Um, and demonstrate action and lead people in a way that helps us maintain democracy and so I, I think that that we all can have a role to play there, but I see just such a wide range of people that's finding where their voice fits and what works um, for them and, and to me that is inspiring and, and important and where I see the sort of the hope here.
2: Yeah. Yeah, we've got um, questions that uh, that are coming in, and um, I would say maybe like the last half dozen or so fit into two buckets. And so, one the the first one is the easier one, but it's come up a couple of times, and it's the difference between engagement and othering. Um, and so, what does it mean to like engage someone? Does engagement lead to belonging, or the relationship between engagement? Sometimes it can lead to othering, like you know, and like uh, desegregation of of, of schools, for example, didn't lead to integrated belonging. It actually led to a, a, a different sort of othering or a more explicit form of it uh, in schools. Um, and then also, can engagement be the basis for othering? Like, me and you are engaged in the fight for democracy. The people that are too busy to do so, are we othering them by, um, by sort of, you know, um, and I don't I don't uh, well, I don't engaged, know. Maybe I'll, I'll just be
4: disengaged.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. we're we're fighting for democracy. Like, why are you just free riding off the work of other people? Why aren't you engaged? Other are we then, you know, creating division? So I guess this is sort of a rambly way of saying the 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 relationship between engagement, civic engagement, othering and belonging, and then is there a line of demarcation or line of division between those who are engaged and those who aren't?
0: Yeah. Um, I guess I would say there's not just one answer to any of those things, right? I think it depends how we do it. So I'll answer your your mm. second question first, right? So if we engage in a way that that actively others people that are disengaged, so we're always creating different in groups, different groups that we right. can do. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we're creating out groups. My grandmother is a knitter. Um, when she moved from Florida to Baltimore, knitting became really important to her because one of the ways that she met people was that she started knitting at a local store. So her identity as a knitter and her group membership as a knitter became really, really important to her in a way that it hadn't before, but she wasn't othering anyone, othering,
4: that, right. right? There was no, right.
0: there was no, I mean, there's sort of the people that aren't in the in-group, right? That aren't knitters, but they weren't seen with suspicion or threat or right. exactly different in some essential way. You just don't share that. So I think it matters how how we do it. You could, you could do civic engagement in a way that said that it's a threat who, like, like you could portray people in this way that they're less than or different from in a fundamental way, um, or you can do it in a way that says we're civically engaging and we're doing it because we relate to these values and we're able to have community and belonging in doing it. And we're so excited to be able to do this together. And you can be explicit, like not everybody has the ability to do it, right? Some right. people just um. Some people are busy. Some people um, uh, might have other reasons why. Maybe they don't like. Uh, maybe they're really shy, and it's really hard for them to go and get other people to civically engage. Like I, I think that there's. It really depends how you do it. Um, mm-hmm. and and I think an awareness of that. I think that comes to that sort of, uh, that self awareness piece of like, uh, are am I othering in some way? Right? Are we doing this in a way that actually that actually is harmful. And and am I doing it in a way, we talk about sometimes us and them, where we can just all mm-hmm. exist. Right. And then there's us versus them, where there's some sort of zero-sum competition, right? Like, like we're in competition. And then there's us in the extreme us or them, right? Our survival or their survival. That's in that mm-hmm. sort of extreme justification of violence. So if we're in the us and them territory, um, that's, that's okay. And that's healthy. If we start to get us versus them, we can start to notice. And if we start to feel us or them, we should really reflect on, on what that means. Um, mm. And I think I might have lost track of your, of the first part of that. that no, but,
2: but no, I think that really got to, yeah, I think that got to, to both parts. I mean, like, like you said, it wasn't like, um, you know, the knitters or after the crocheters and like, yeah. this, like <laughs> this, this war for material or something like that. Right.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: yeah. Okay, so that's good. And then the the next batch of questions are sort of like the role of the... We've talked about this, but I think the the added element of this question is um, not just the role of narratives about other groups and our perception of other groups, how that can feed conflict, but the role of elites in that process. Mm -hmm. And if if the elites want conflict, if they're stoking misperceptions of other folks, if they're putting out misinformation, disinformation, if they're feeding the flames of conflict, um, then, then how do we and, and even pollsters? One of the questions was about the role of polls telling us, oh, Republicans think this or Democrats think that, or pro-Israel, po- pro, you know, Palestinian folks think these things. Um, how do we like disentangle from the web of information that tells us what to think about ourselves and other folks? And then the elites that have the reins of power in the biggest microphone megaphones telling us. The things you're hearing about those other folks is true, and it's even worse than you can imagine. And so there's like this batch of questions that wants to know how do we get out of the doom loop. Um, and, and again, I think we've talked about some of this, but maybe the the added role of elites in the process could, is is sort of the a um a little bit of a twist on on some of the earlier conversation.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I think in the work that. I do on communication. We don't, again, like I said, just think about the narrative. We think about the communication ecosystem that we're operating in and where are there different sort of actors or channels or spaces that are disproportionately shaping people's perception. I think there's things that we can all do as individuals, which is look for different perspectives, look for different lived experiences that people have, Um, and they're writing mm -hmm. or sharing about that to be able to get. A holistic picture not just of what's happening but how people are sense making around it when it comes to conflict we want to understand the reality and the facts we also want to understand the the um the perception of that that people are living with and the stories and sense making because it's often really different you can have one event and in a conflict you see that different groups of people are making sense really differently because they have different leaders or people in positions of influence and credibility and authority that are that are sort of um, giving a particular narrative to that set of events. And you also have, I mean, this is all made much more complicated by how much mis and disinformation that there mm-hmm. is, but there is a real role that elites play, right? This is why we say that the speech and rhetoric is much more dangerous when it's spread by in- people that are influential, seen as credible, have really big microphones and really big reach. Um, and so I, I, there's different ways to get out of that doom loop. I do think that leadership really matters there. And I don't just mean political leadership. I mean leadership at all levels of society, different institutions, um, leaders in sort of media roles, um, et cetera. And I think that we can ask of our leaders and show that what we want and um, that what we wanna see is something is something different. Um, I, I think as well, it's important to to know that that there are often those misperceptions where there's perceptions that feed themselves. There is research that shows that that we are not as divided on policy positions as we think if you get really specific about it, right? Versus when we're really polarized, sometimes beliefs become sort of like badges of where we belong. So it's just like one slogan, but if you actually break down what people are, what people care about or are interested in, often gets much closer. um, Than you think, but people are only sort of hearing one perspective, um, and they're they're assuming a lot about what someone else thinks by the maybe slogan that they're saying, or or just that they say I land on this side or or this side of an issue. So so there is often a misperception on how polarized we are about about different issues, especially when you have that sort of dom- the domination of those narratives in public spaces, and when people who maybe have more nuanced views feel Feel the need to to disengage. Um, right. so I think that there's, I think that there's a lot that can can be done there at the sort of. Um, different points of intervention to try and shift what those narratives are to try and shift incentives for elites. I also think this is where as well, thinking about who are other credible messengers, who are you as a messenger? Who can you reach? Who are you as just someone that's connected to other people? Who can you start to have conversations um, and learn about their perspective and and not just what they think, but how did you come to think that? And what are some of the details of what you think and why it matters to you and is important, we can start to understand and demystify for ourselves. But I think that on the level of elites, um, it's also important um, not to feel hopeless and to realize that um, that that there are a lot of types of leaders in our society that can stand up and make a difference and that people might have credibility or might have influence based on um, a different role that they have right maybe they're a lay leader in their faith community right maybe they're really active in volu- maybe really active in volunteering in a community and therefore know a lot of people and are able to have conversations maybe somebody's a veteran and people um, uh, listen to them on certain topics so i think that we in terms of combating that role of elites, I think there are, there are sort of the interventions that can directly address that and 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 seek to engage and shift the behavior of elites. But it's also about activating a lot of other messengers, right? A lot of other speakers mm-hmm. that, that are part of different organizations that have different identities um, to really speak and um, and shift those norms, right? And share personal experiences and stories and things like that. Um, and, and I think, so, so I think that there's, um it's not just sort of waiting for the 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 people with that are the most elite or have the most power to shift the narratives it's also looking at where are there other really credible messengers um uh that can use their voice
2: um very good all right so we've got about 10 more minutes left um i think we've got time for about two more questions so i'll ask one and i'll give a quick reminder to the audience and then i'll ask the last one before we before we wrap up. Um, and so you authored an amazing, or your organization, along with the American Immigration Council, um, authored this incredible report called the Belonging Barometer that sort of shows the crisis of belonging in different parts of the country at the federal level, in the workplace, and communities. And then I, I think it was shortly thereafter your report came out earlier this year that the Surgeon General said that there's a loneliness crisis um, in the United States. And um, these two things. Are sort of two sides of the same coin and they fit into the conversation here because groups that feel a lack of belonging or people that feel a lack of belonging or groups or people that feel lonely are sort of right to be picked off by conflict entrepreneurs, um, uh, folks that would uh, um, try to give them some sense of belonging for some divisive or, or, or destructive cause. Uh, and so um you know, one of the folks brings up that in the Federalist Papers, they talk a lot about, or in Federalist Paper 10 in particular, about the dangers of like the tyranny of the minority. And and this is why we need to have a large republic to prevent faction from taking over the country, to prevent unprincipled folks from steering us in the wrong direction. But it seems like based on our conversation that we've got a belonging problem, a loneliness problem, too many conflict entrepreneurs, not enough moderating forces that are, um, that can be resilient to the escalating tensions and a um, a, a sort of a rising minority that is having its way in the country on the backs of this crisis of belonging and loneliness. So can, can you, why is, why are those things, the things that make people more susceptible to violence or to to supporting authoritarianism. Um, What is it about belonging and loneliness that um, that sort of pushes democracy off the rails?
0: Yeah and these are you know these are questions that can be tackled at sort of a philosophical level and then at the Mm. level of that sort of wiring that we were talking about that we're wired for belonging and that we look for belonging and that it's really threatening. Not to have belonging, and there's a lot of work in extremism, right? And and in small in 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 um, recruitment into extremist groups right. in and communities. Part of what people find and gain from those spaces is that they get a sense of belonging, they get a sense of purpose and importance, um, and certainty, like a framework that is really um, sort of uh, builds in a lot of certainty when when life is very uncertain. Um, and and so. Um, belonging can be something that brings us together across different to, i mean mm-hmm. belonging like i said it's this really human thing but it can also um, be really used to to draw people into very extreme spaces and in, and people often do find belonging in the groups that they're part of that might advocate or engage um in violence right part of like I said that construction of another group is a threat is that it creates an in-group where we belong right and now we all have this common feeling and you can think of even just like um uh I don't know if we were on a ship and like shipwrecked, there's lots of dynamics that would play out but for this moment right suddenly it's like us like, like how how are we surviving how are we so I I just right. um, um, it creates that sort of solidarity through a shared threat or a shared um, instruction and, and a lot of the way those groups are designed is to give people a sense of belonging and a lot of the way that recruitment happens is to to make it really exciting to to join a group and to find belonging in that group, and 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 I said philosophical. I'll read a quote that we that we included in the report from Hannah Arendt, who said that authoritarianism bases itself bases itself on loneliness, on the experience mm. of not belonging to the world at all, which is among the most radical and desperate experiences of man, right? Wow. And, and I think we see that in so many ways. Um, we see that in these strict lines of where and how you can belong, based on sort of a particular part of your identity on that lack of of trust and belonging more broadly to each other um, in all of our our diversity um and we see that like i said in and in, in the sort of um that that recruitment but but i do right. think that that we see it also in the silencing and disengaging. So I said before that you always see really heroic examples of courageous individuals doing things. Part of the reason that that it's often individuals in these extreme cases is that people are made to fear each other, right? And and it's scary then to open a conversation or think about what can we do about this situation we might not be happy about. And so um, I do think one of the most important things is to find and build community and belonging
4: mm-hmm.
0: that is rooted in values of recognizing the dignity of everyone, right? Of democracy, of these things, and 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 to to really recognize that if we if 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 the choice if we end up in a society where our choices you get to not belong or you have to go along with these types of violence, et cetera, um, then it that then we're in a really really dangerous place. So again, mm-hmm. to that extreme. Right. So one of the things that we can do is create spaces of belonging that are rooted in these pro social, pro democracy um, um values. But but when we do see, like you said, there is um there there are people that have been organizing around these narratives in really destructive ways for democracy. And there is certainly a strong sense of belonging in those communities. So when we also think about how to undo that, we have to think about um about first of all, setting really strong as a society that violence is not okay, that anti-democratic right. behavior is not okay, et cetera. And then in the long term, we're going to have to figure out um, how to find alternate uh, as part of I think that sort of de- de-radicalization. If you talk to people that've worked in extremism, there's a lot of there's there's a lot of work to do. But how do you give people a different place where they belong that is not parroting conspiracies, constructing, right. th- humanizing other people.
2: Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, you know, the the belonging that people may get from these kind of movements or very divisive um, sort of coalitions, uh, it doesn't come free. That they, that they are given meaning, they are giving it in exchange for like loyalty to a person or loyalty to a cause that maybe under other conditions they wouldn't be loyal to at all. So raising that contradiction, you know, saying like, this is not what we do here, the, the norms don't embrace this kind of activity or behavior, or that the thing that you're pledging a loyalty to is, it runs counter to the things you say you care about, your values, your principles, uh, and maybe exposing that gap will, will help people get back. But look, as I thought would happen, we have like run out of time and um, so so much to talk about it. For, for those folks attending, before we close tonight, I wanted to ask you to click now on the link the Village Square team is putting in the chat window to the post evaluation survey. Uh, you answered questions before we started, now we'll do the post, um, and if you can answer the questions while we're finishing up tonight's program, you'll help us better understand political division and... You'll have a chance to win a hundred dollar Amazon gift card just in time for the holidays. So please click on that, that link and, and knock the survey out. Um, so, Rachel, before we wrap up tonight, um, I wanted to leave with this final question that came up in the chat. And it's uh given your expertise and experience with election violence, this one will um, you know, I think folks will have a lot to learn from you here. Uh, we have one year until the 2024 elections, a year this uh from now this month what would you suggest as steps of action that concerned citizens can take to hold on to our democracy and and ideally you know bring it back from the brink and improve it along the way it's a
0: really Great question, and thank you to whoever asked that question. I will say a couple of things. One is think about the systems that are in place to ensure our democracy. Like I said, there are our conflict management mechanisms, and we want them to function. So find out how elections um, administration is working in your local area, see how you can get involved, how you can volunteer, how you can support. Um, the people running elections are under a tremendous amount of stress and pressure right now, um, and if you can can volunteer, engage, help educate others in your community around it, that's wonderful. The other thing I would say for people to do is do a little bit of self-reflection right? Who are you as a messenger? Who looks to you for setting social norms? Who are you connected to in your community that might not be connected to each other? How can you start to have conversations about values that are pro-democracy and that stand um, against violence, against dehumanization, and for recognizing each other's humanity and dignity? And can you start to just get people in conversation with each other, right? Can you start to connect people that aren't already connected? We know that those types of networks and connections and relationships where you Know each other's values and set those norms in advance really matter so i would really encourage everyone to think of yourself as a leader and to ask who looks to me for their cues right who, mm. who am i speaking to on a regular basis it doesn't have to be in a big public platform it can be in one-on-one conversations how am i engaging in in my own network and how am i helping connect people to deepen our understanding about these issues and then think about where you have special skills talents connections spaces where you serve as a leader and, and how you can leverage those to really activate some of those cross-cutting identities, set positive norms, um, help people take steps to get to know each other. um, and how can you have some of the conversations and, and think about who you're connected to that you can learn from and learn about their experience that will help you do that work.
2: Well um thank you Rachel uh thank you to Village Square and all the attendees and all the supporters for uh the program tonight um i i i, have, I almost want to go back and read some of the of of like the wrap-ups after covid or after january 6 to sort of pull some of the things that we talked about here and and see anew um you know those events that i thought i understood but maybe um you know with this conversation I've got a a better more more insight into so thank you for all the work that you're doing and thank you for sharing that uh, the insights with us this evening um any last words or um if we're let folks know how they can find you or your work
0: thank you so much Ted it's really always exciting to get to have a conversation with you and thanks to Village Square and all of the different partners um and thanks to everyone that that chose to engage in this conversation, I know these themes can be really challenging. Um, I hope that this helped in some way to maybe demystify or, or give some additional frameworks to understand what you see that's happening and hopefully help you feel like you have some ways to engage. Um, so just really appreciative of, of everyone for participating and organizing and tend to be in, in conversation with you. It's always wonderful.
2: Absolutely, indeed. All right. Very good. Thank you all for joining us and good night.
1: Wow, that was a good night. Or maybe you were listening during the day or in the morning, whenever you were listening to it, it was a good, good, good conversation. Corey Nathan here back with you. Just a couple takeaways before signing off. First of all, I am so encouraged by the work Rachel Brown's organization is doing. We need a lot less of the zero sum mentality or I guess I should say, we're over zero. I'm also, just as a side note, I am a huge fan of Dr. Ted Johnson. As an interviewer and a moderator, I got to study that dude's work and incorporate more of what he's doing. In terms of their conversation, it's good to hear a growing number of leaders in this space coming to similar diagnoses and more importantly, deriving similar conclusions in terms of what we can do about it. So for example, Rachel talked about expanding the way we identify others as well as ourselves. A guy like me, so if, if you knew I'm a New York Mets fan, for example, uh, h- how often do we jump to the conclusion that's all you need to know about me and now you know everything, right? I mean, it's one thing if you're a Yankee fan, that's all I need to know. <laughs> not just kidding. But that's, that's the point. It's like we, we assign one data point to someone and then create this whole narrative about a, a human being. So we're all complex individuals and being able to see each other and try to understand each other in all our complexities is a good first step toward humanizing each other. Another takeaway was that when many of us are in our groups, we can be prone to let the loudest voices in that group drown out the rest of us. But in every group, there are upstanders as Rachel called them upstanders folks who might think, hey, wait, do we really hate all those other guys? Upstanders tend to get silenced or shamed for not towing the company line, but I say be a real rebel and be an upstander. It takes folks within their own groups to affect change, right? And that leads to the idea of social norms. By rejecting violence and other forms of causing harm to them, to those people, we can set a new precedent within our own groups and normalizing or Renormalizing healthier civic behavior. And then ultimately, instead of the tone being set by the screamers who say it's all a zero sum game, we'll have more folks figuring out how we're going to live together saying we're over zero. (laughs) And with that, it's time to close out today. Please consider joining our members and supporting this programming. You can become a member for just $7 a month or $76 a year, and your business can join for $250. Go to villagesquare.us slash donate to join today. That's www.villagesquare.us slash donate. While you're there, sign up for Village Square's newsletter to stay up to date with everything happening at the Village Square. So many great programs coming up, other episodes of this Village Square cast. Go to villagesquare.us and scroll to the bottom for the sign-up box. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities, with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. We appreciate you listening to The Roots of Belonging and the Risks of Othering with Rachel Brown of Over Zero. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't think or look like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon and thanks so much for listening to Village Squarecast.